The following is an original audio series from Sierra International Machinery, Pile of Scrap, with your host, John Sacco. Well, I'm here today in Chicago, Isri 2019 Roundtables. I'm here with Jason Shanker. Big Jay. Good to see you, John. Good to have you here. Jason is, um, why don't you tell us who you are? Uh, You know it better than me because you're just Superman, super economist, but you're everywhere, but Jay, give it, give us a little bit of a background who you are um, to our listeners. Yeah, so I, I do a couple of things. So um, I run a company called Prestige Economics. It's a financial market research firm. We forecast different uh, things like metals prices, energy prices, currency rates, macroeconomic indicators. And uh, we've been uh, consistently top ranked by Bloomberg uh, since I founded the firm. And I also run an organization called the Futurist Institute. We're focused on helping uh, consultants, analysts, executives incorporate new and emerging technology risk and opportunity into their strategic planning. So those are kind of the two hats I wear, but I I also write columns for Bloomberg and do some TV And you also write books. And I write books. I mean, dude, you're prolific. This is what, your 12th book? How many books have you written in the last year? Uh, So I've written 12 books in 12 months. So that is book 12 in 12 months. The Reading the Economic Tea Leaves. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Is it coming out? Is it out now? It's out now. All right, right on. It came out in August. There's another book coming out this month. But I, you know, I kind of set myself a goal to do a book a month and and it, it, it's kind of gone. But uh, but in total, that's my 20th book. So I had done eight books before I started the one book a month. And so here sleep? we are. I do sleep? I sleep well. I sleep like a baby. But do uh, you sleep? Yeah, a month, yeah. one hour. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, I sleep just fine. I, I actually find writing to be really relaxing for me. It's what I love to do more than almost anything is just sit there and like problem solve and uh, research stuff and and then share information that I've kind of digested and theories I've come up. All right, with. well, let's get started here on some questions because I've had a couple listeners to our podcast ask me to ask this question, and because of your you know your economist and you know what the hell's going on in this world, they want to know about the tariffs. Yep. What's it done to the U.S. economy, and specifically, how's it driving? The, the recycling industry with the metals and, for that matter, plastic and paper to to what to extent you can tell us. Sure, sure. So let's take the global macroeconomic piece first. There was a report that the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, put out in May looking at what were the impacts of the tariffs. few big things, right? The big loser, no surprise, China. Okay. The big winner, Mexico. Um, U.S. a little bit winning, uh, benefiting from the the trade war with China and other countries seeing kind of mixed results. But the big loser, China, big winner, Mexico. Uh, What we're seeing on a global basis, what we're also likely to see are displacements of manufacturing. So the longer this goes on, and we don't necessarily see an imminent improvement in the situation because I fundamentally do not believe that the trade war is just about tariffs. I think it's about bigger things like Chinese economic and political hegemony over Asia and more. The world. Right. So that's kind of what it's about. Even the Section 301 tariff. So there's two tariffs. There's the 232, which means a whole lot for this industry. And there's the Section 301, which is based on sort of intellectual property and, and these sorts of things. And that's really... Uh, a tariff that was implemented, and that's the one we hear the most about in the news now, ramping up and, and going These back are the and ones where Trump says, we're going to add another X billion to this, yeah. and this, and this, and this. So that's the Section 301, and that's designed to counter Chinese, the threat of Chinese technological supremacy on a global basis. The Section 232s are designed to foster 
more uh, production of aluminum and steel domestically so that the U.S. could be prepared and would not be at further risk in the future of being unable to produce material, to producing uh, weapons. And is the effect that we are able to do this, what's the net effect on those aluminum and steel right now in the U.S.? Well, what we're seeing in the IMF report kind of shows for all these tariffs is that prices of things have gone up, right? So domestically, we see this has had an inflationary impact for a number of things. In terms of steel and aluminum and the like, we've seen it with the HRC, the, the hot rolled coil Midwest delivered NYMEX contract. That had seen a really big spike, although the price has fallen over the past number of months. And the reason for that is slowing and anticipated additional slowing in U.S. steel demand. But that steel benchmark in particular saw a big spike because that's Midwest delivered, which means obviously steel in the U.S. going to see much higher prices because not only were there tariffs, but there were also quotas. So some countries like Brazil have import quotas. That that means uh, you, once you hit a certain volume, no mas steel from Brazil, right? So there's a couple of countries that have quotas. You've got the tariffs in place, which makes it more expensive to bring material in. And so what you've seen is an inflationary impact, but also a protectionary uh, set of policies designed to uh, protect U.S. Uh, interests in, in production of steel and aluminum. And so over time, if these remain in place, you're likely to see some more production of U.S. aluminum and steel. But these dynamics and the ability to protect those industries have also come up against uh, the downward price pressure on aluminum and steel globally. Well, that's what, I'm gonna, that's what I'm going to ask you. Okay, prices, the commodity prices right now, other than copper, scrap, and aluminum, yep. scrap, yep. HMS, is really on the downward trend. Yep. Are we going to continue this? Is this a tariff? If, we, if tariffs were eliminated tomorrow, like some candidates want, what change anything, or is this just a... The cycle of what we're going through. Yeah, so I, I think there's a couple pieces. So if there's this economic term that academic economists use, and I'm not an academic economist, but, but there's this concept of ceteris paribus. In other words, if everything else didn't matter, this is what the world would be. And so we get to play this kind of fairy tale game as economists. And so um, if you didn't have a global decline right now, uh, those aluminum and steel prices would be much higher, especially Midwest premium and mid, uh, for, for aluminum, uh, Midwest delivered steel, uh, that NYMEX contract, those would be even higher, much higher than they are now. The global slowdown, though, has had these ripples. And so we, we can't play this fairy tale game of saying, well, you know, let's exclude the rest of the world. When we think about the whole world, um, even copper has been on a downtrend. Nickel's really been one of the big exceptions, and that's because of an, uh, an Indonesian export ban. So, but almost every other metal has been trending downward and over the past number of months. Really, uh, since the beginning of uh, 2018, a lot of the metals have been falling. Okay, so that segues into, quickly, if you would, the China economy... Asian economy, and then let's go to Europe. Quickly sure. say where they are and, 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 and when you forecast where they're going between now and the end of the year. I, sure. you know, wherever you can just know it's going. You know, We don't want to get too far out there because nobody really knows the future. Yeah, so uh, I, I don't know. I, I, some of us do, but you know. All right, wanna, so you I don't. Can I have your crystal ball? <laughs> oh, no, that's right. Well, no, that's why there's the book about reading the tea leaves, right? <laughs> so uh, you know, what, what I'd say is a couple things. So one, First of all, U.S. economy is doing pretty good 
and it's doing excellent compared to other economies globally, right? So U.S. GDP 2019 likely to be between two and two and a half percent. Next year, we see it maybe closer to one to one and a half percent. Still growth. Still growth, still positive. Uh, China has been in a manufacturing recession for more than half a year now. The Eurozone has been in a manufacturing recession for more than half a year now. Uh, those are now manufacturing is the majority of those economies. It's not even for China, uh, and it's certainly not for the Eurozone, and it's not for the U.S., but those are really good proxies for how investment is going in those economies, how capital-intense industries are performing. What that means is China's in trouble right now. Those tariffs have had a material impact, and right now companies are looking at moving their supply chains around. So this is actually, if I can jump back to the question of how are the tariffs affecting this industry, okay. um, there's a key word here, and I think it's displacement. And so what you're seeing is the potential for companies to completely rework their supply chains on a global basis, and that's creating displacement in terms of where scrap flows are going to go, and where, is it flowing where the now? demand's going to be. Okay, so where is it going to flow? Different The different flows, where do you see it? Yeah, I think you're going to see more into Taiwan. I think you'll see more into Korea. I think you'll see more into China-adjacent Asia, Okay, uh, and that's for goods overall. I think for high-tech goods, you could see more in Taiwan than in other places in the short term. Okay. But I think you're going to see a lot more coming to Mexico as well, which is why Mexico's been the big winner, because if you're going to go to the trouble of moving your manufacturing anyway, why not put it in what's probably very soon going to be the USMCA region? That's okay. I would have never thought Mexico was the winner. Mexico that's was very, the winner. That's a very interesting thing. And and lastly, on the tariffs, last question I have for you on this. You don't think there's going to be, there, there's no deal imminent with a trade deal. Is that because China's waiting and they pretty much are thinking there's going to be a change in our president in the next year? Or are they just not, are they, who, who can hold out the longest? Uh, I think that the reason there's unlikely to be a deal is because I do not believe that the U.S. government, and I think this is a bipartisan issue, uh, does not fundamentally want to deal. And Peter Navarro, the U.S. trade star, has written several books about China. Some of these are a decade or more old. The coming China wars, where they'll be and how to win them. Uh, Crouching Tiger, what China's militarism means for the world. And my personal favorite, Death by China, right? These are three books written by the person in the position to influence what happens with trade. None of those books are really completely about trade. It's about other geopolitical stuff and the fact that there are certain economic things that China does that they're not going to change, right? Uh, the fact their central bank isn't independent, the fact that the, the environmental, uh, the, way, the way they treat the environment and their manufacturing processes, uh, export subsidies, they're, they're not going to change those things. And the U.S. trade starts taking a very hard line on this. And again, there's a multi-year track record of him writing multiple books about the subject. Uh, the second thing is Lighthizer, who's the U.S. trade representative, so different from Navarro, who's the trade czar. Uh, you know, he's the one behind the Section 301 and the 232 tariffs. These are national security. To that point, I would argue, if we think back to that first debate at the end of June of the Democratic candidates, on the second night, there were 10 Democrats on the stage, and they were asked... What is the biggest national security threat to the country? One person said Iran, one person said Russia, three people said nuclear weapons, four people said climate change, and four people said China. 
just yesterday, there was an op-ed, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, where George Soros, who is is hated by the alt-right yeah. uh, and, and by a lot of conservative um, uh, pundits and the like, wrote a praising op-ed of Trump's policies on China regarding trade. All right. So. Hold on. Let me ask you this. <laughs> sure. Okay. You have a known Trump hater in Soros. It, it, it's not even close. We know he's an anti-Trumper. Um, is the president, in your opinion, without being political, being from economics, is he on the right track? Yeah, so this is so this is interesting. I think that when the history books look back at Trump decades from now, they'll probably say two things. One is that he did these really, you know, as of now, did these really big tax cuts, and uh, that he was the first president to really push back on on the threat of Chinese technological, economic, and political hegemony on a global basis. And so the fact that you have folks as, uh, you know, as, as across the political spectrum as Soros and, and, and Navarro and Trump and others, uh, as well as the Democratic candidates for president, all pointing at China as a potential threat, uh, this does indicate it is a bipartisan issue and probably not likely to go away. Because if everyone's on board, you know, maybe it is a real thing. And, uh, and, and that's, that's kind of been our assumption. This is real. And, and I think this is I mean, Soros said it in his op-ed that this is, you know, really one of the the marquee pieces of of Trump's foreign policy, and uh, and 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 quite positive. So, I, well, I you know, I will tell nice. you a quick little note. I'm from Bakersfield, California, as you know, and in the Central Valley, we have a lot of farming, and they're being hurt by the tariffs with the export into China for the grapes, table grapes, big, and other farm, you know, uh, produce products and uh, I don't want to get into that but there's pain and we were told we're going to have to suffer some short-term pain well how long short-term pain so it's interesting I was actually at a Fed event back in May and I was at a table with a number of reporters and if I said their names you would know who they were from major media business media outlets and we were discussing the search for a farmer, just any farmer in Iowa who opposed Trump and was upset about the tariffs. And they couldn't find a single one. Multiple major media outlets have scoured the Midwest to find one farmer who would change their political views on Trump because of the tariffs. They couldn't find a single one. They, they spent weeks out there looking for people. So... You know, I think there's a couple of things. And one is that there are these agricultural subsidies that have been introduced to help buffer the downside for the farmers because they're taking the brunt of it. But look, all commodities, food is a commodity, metals are a commodity. This is part of the displacement piece, right? Like on a global basis, what do we know? Well, we know the global economy is growing. We know that you're going to get 3% GDP growth for global, for planet Earth, because more people are on planet Earth every year. We know that 30 years from now, there will be 2.1 billion more people on planet Earth. That's a lot of mouths to feed. That's a lot of mouths to feed. A lot of cars. A lot of cars. Right. The whole (laughs) thing, right? So we know that there's going to be, if we look, you know, 5, 10, 20, 30 years out, we know demand for metals, demand for energy, demand for food. That's all going up. Whether the, you know, the table grapes and the scrap metal for the next 12, 18 months, you know, where does it go and it's a little in flux, fine, but it's going to find a market 
because the rising demand is there on a global basis. That's great. That's great insight. All right, let, let's economically, what is the biggest driver of the U.S. economy? I had some. I had some things. Is it housing? Is it defense? Is it the actual government itself? Is it oil? Is it tech? What is the biggest driver of the U.S. economy? Yeah, so this is a, a wonderful question, and it explains why we're doing better than other economies. On and All developed economies, we're doing better than. 70% of the U.S. economy is consumption. It is people buying stuff. So durable goods like washing machines or refrigerators, non-durable goods like consumer food, products, then. consumer products, okay. CPG, the whole thing. But it's people out there buying stuff. That means as long as people have jobs and their wages are up, that's 70% of the economy. Right now, we have the lowest unemployment rate in about 50 years. Uh, wages are up 3.2% year on year. They have been for a number of months. Uh, this is a very strong level of wage gains. And that's 70% of the economy. That's 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 the lion's share. You know, I, I think people who listen to this, I mean, I think this is, for me, it's educational. Because, you know, you hear, oh, housing starts, this, non-farm yep. Yep. Farm payrolls, payrolls, whatever, yep. all these things. But, you know, that, that that's great insight. And I, I really, you know, for me on a personal level, sitting here with you, I'm learning too. Oh, great. So maybe That's I don't good. have to read all your books, Jay. Well, it's in the, it's in the books too. There's some graphs and charts and things like whatever. It's pictures too. Like I, I hate books that don't have pictures in them. So, uh, Me too. and you know, right? Like my books have plenty of pictures. So, uh, yeah. All right. That's funny. All right. Listen, let's talk about taxes for a second and the economic California, New York, the highest tax states in the, in the, the union. All right. We had the so-called, uh, largest tax cuts, blah, blah, blah. What is the net effect on the economy? And I, I want to take it from the U.S., and then I want to take it to the states that have low taxes, if no tax, and how their economies, are they really growing? Is it the taxes that are, what's driving it? Yeah, so I guess there's a couple of things. So first of all, if we take it at the national level. As an economist, I would say tax is always bad, tax cuts always good. Right? Always. Okay. But I would also say more debt, always bad. We got a lot of debt. We got a lot of, of debt, and the debt keeps going up. So it doesn't seem as if these taxes were balanced, and I don't know if they ever will be, the tax cuts. So I'm really torn because tax cuts are good, almost no matter what kind they are, and more debt's always bad, almost no matter what kind it is. So this was a mixed bag. Similarly... The yin to the yang, really. Yeah, something like that, but, but in a less pleasant way. And... In, in a very similar fashion, if we think about what's the state level impact, uh, we see something similar, right? So some states benefited a lot. Like I'm in Texas. We have no state income tax. So Texas benefited more uh, than, say, California did or New York or Illinois. So these places have much higher state taxes. And now you can't deduct it and then the whole thing, right? So... Um, uh, you know, there are there are some ways that there were benefits, and it depends very much on what state you're in and whether there's state income tax or not. And some of the tax cuts and the exclusions and the deductions and the changes, you know, some of it was to simplify the tax code, which definitely, there's no question. The okay, tax code is, is simplified uh, in a certain respect because now you have a lot more people taking the standard deduction. So that means you have fewer itemized tax returns. So it's easier for the average person to just take the standard deduction and go, this is way bigger than 
you know, whatever my, my mortgage payment uh, interest is and uh, or what I'm even allowed to take on that mortgage interest or the taxes on the home or this and that and the other thing, uh, uh, charity donations and the like, and you go, well, you know what, the standard deduction is so big, I'm just going to take that. So that was a simplified thing, and, and that's positive. But for actual individuals and what it put in terms of people's pockets, I think it had a really mixed effect. And some people were quite surprised that they they got a lot more back than they were expecting, and they, they had much lower taxes last year, and they were surprised. And other folks got hit with a massive tax bill at the end of the year, and they were shocked because taxes they had previously deducted were no longer deducted. Thank you. I live in California. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, so I got killed on that one. Right. So, Ten grand is all we get to deduct on. And my property taxes for the properties I own exceed that and just... Yeah. So so it really depends on uh, you know where you live, how much you benefited, and, and what assets you So are these states the with the lower... So going from... That's the Fed. Now going to these states with, yep. the, with the lower tax rate, are they actually growing because of that? Well, I mean, uh, is look, it, or is it just people just right? So there's move, so there's not it? that many states that have no state income tax. Right? There's a handful of them. Um, uh, you know, Wyoming's one. Uh, uh, it's Texas, where my brother lives. It's where your brother lives. Texas, lucky, lucky guy. Texas is another. It's where I live. I'm in the wrong right? state, dude. Florida's <laughs> another one. Right? There's there's a handful of states. Those states benefited asymmetrically. But I would also say that those states. Well, Wyoming seeing a huge influx of folks leaving California. The same is true of Texas. I don't know if the same is true in, in, in Florida, but I know in Texas we're getting a lot of these sort of, uh, you know, folks kind of fleeing higher levels of, of taxation in other states. And deplor- they, are you getting more deplorables? No, no, no. no. <laughs> nothing, nothing like this. Well, if, 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 if you know, if I, I, I think we're getting people of all political persuasions because you know, there is this discussion, is Texas turning purple and, and the whole thing? Because we're getting people from California. We're getting people from New York. We're getting people from the coast. Um, you know, does that make it less a Republican state? So, um, and, and I don't necessarily know if that's true, and, and I think time will tell. But I, but even that thought indicates that we're not getting, uh, you know, kind of one kind of, uh, of uh, person relocating. But places like Texas are just growing because... There's a lot of people moving there. The land is super cheap compared to California or New York or well, many I, other we, places. Well, we built on the a coast. factory in Georgia. Yep. Okay. The simple reason was a the permit process was a day. Yep. To get a permit to build a 46,000 square foot facility, and then our 24,000 uh, foot expansion that we did, you know, uh, in Georgia for our balers because we get we get good demand on our, our products that we're innovating and, and making. There is no permit process. California, I still wouldn't, I still probably wouldn't have a permit. Yeah, I mean, so, I, it so sounds there, like it, the, it, the permitting process sounds better for scotch than, than starting a business just because you want it to age so long. But, <laughs> you know, I mean. <laughs> do you like scotch? I do. Oh, I do. I'm drinking my Macallan 18 here. I'm liking go, it a lot. Go. All right, let's talk about your involvement with Israel. Sure. You've been around Isri for a long time. Yeah, almost 15 years. And we've had the best times over the years. But why do you love this trade association and being around all of it? What is it? You know, Isri's a great group of people. You know, it's, it's people who are really enthusiastic about their industry. They care a lot about what they do. It's a lot of entrepreneurs in the industry, um, although that dynamic has, has shifted over time. 
but you know, it's interesting. It's people who see an industry that's driven by the global economy. You know, there's not too many industries that are almost like raw, unadulterated, cut to the bone, macro driven. And the scrap industry is definitely one of those. Well, I always tell people, I can give you the state of the economy Right. Based on our industry, yeah, so we're a little we're the little quiet powerhouse. We, we in respect yeah. to, we can tell you what the economy is doing. Yeah, but yeah, I, I don't know how little you know what a hundred hundred twenty billion dollar economy in the U.S. Uh, you know for 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 the scrap industry, it, it's a, I mean that's not that little. There's, okay. there's much smaller industries. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, Jay? I'm, I'm always glad you're still part of coming to Israel. For those who don't want know don't know what ISRI stands for, it's the Institute of Scrap Recycling Industries. I had the honor of being the chairman, 2011, 2012. A lot of fun. All right. I've always wanted to ask this question about the economy. Okay, here it is. Here it comes. Let it the, rip. The sports industry. Okay. I'm sitting there this weekend with my son. He's got his fantasy football team, and I'm watching these games in these stadiums and these. Huge amount of people in these stadiums, these big billion-dollar stadiums, okay? All the people that work it, all the colleges, and, and all the sports industry, but the sports on a whole. Yep. What's it effect on our economy? You know, entertainment is a significant part of keeping a populace happy. And... Julius Caesar, the, the no, Coliseum? Like, like this is, I mean, this is the thing, right? <laughs> no, I mean, this is like a real thing, right? If you've ever played one of these... Uh, and I'm sure, uh, you know, I might date myself here, but Civilization or one of these computer games where you build a society, at some point you need to build things to entertain the people, otherwise they get unhappy, right? Okay. So this goes back to, like, even in London, right, that they, you know, Shakespeare wrote certain parts of his plays for what they call the groundlings, who would, you know, like, be standing on the ground, right? <laughs> so, you know, there, there's, you always have to have some level of entertainment. So I think that's important. But what will really shock you, is I was on a, a Texas Startup Road show at the beginning of June this year. And we went to a few different cities and we saw a bunch of different things going on. And one of the things I saw was in Frisco, Texas. And we went and visited where the Dallas Cowboys have their practice facility. It was beautiful. It was this mammoth building and they have a huge workout facility and they have doctors and medical staff and they had nutritionists. It was amazing. Across the street, uh, they have a new facility that isn't even opened yet for esports. And uh, if I remember, I want to say it's Converge might be the team, something like this. But it's the Dallas Cowboys affiliated esports team, which is kids playing video games. What will blow your mind is not only are some of these video gamers making seven figures, but they have certain workout rooms where they're trying to slightly improve by milliseconds their hand eye coordination. And are you ready for this? As part of playing, as being a professional esports gamer, they have to maintain a healthy body and they have to work out regularly and see nutritionists and see medical professionals to make sure they're, they're taking care of themselves. And they share the exact same facilities with the Dallas Cowboys. Can you imagine being a linebacker? And you walk in, and there's a 17-year-old video gamer lifting weights, and you have to, like, get in on a set, right? Like, can you imagine? Like, this is a real thing. I'm not even making this up. You can't make this up. This is crazy. So sports is entertainment. But yep. overall, it seems to be a big factor, in our, a new factor or a new part of our economy 
that we really haven't seen the, the final growth of it. Yeah, you know, I think we're going to see it in different permutations, right? I mean, all sports started as games, right? Like, they're, they're games people play. And so we see the, you know, we've seen, right, these are people throwing around balls and, and hitting balls and, and tossing balls, and, and, and that's the whole thing, right? And now what we're seeing is an evolution. Uh, as a part of the economy, it's still a relatively small part. It performs an important function, also in terms of helping people foster regional identities, we could get into a whole long philosophical thing about that. I, I don't feel like this is the thing. No, no, no. But what I will say is the next level is the video game piece. And you might go, but these are just kids playing games. That's a lot and a hundred years ago, somebody would have said, but they're just out there throwing a ball in a basket. How is that worth millions of dollars? It's guys hitting a ball with a stick. What? What? Right? So at the end of the day, this hasn't finished because sports is evolving to now include gaming. All right, coming down to the end, last questions. Last two questions, simple answer. Yep. Your best economic call and your worst economic call. So probably one of the best economic calls we had, uh, I mean, I think was recently, I think we said coming into this year, we were worried about a Chinese manufacturing recession and a U.S. business investment recession. We are seeing both of those right now. Uh, one of my worst calls is a few years ago when we had a business investment recession and 2015-2016, uh, U.S. business investment contracted. Industrial production was negative year on the year. Uh, the only time that's ever happened was when there was an overall recession. Yeah. And I thought we would see a spillover and we didn't. And the reason was the consumer was just so darn strong, the economy kept going. And we didn't even see a, a, a modest recession. GDP growth in 2015 was like 2.6, and in 2016 was 1.6. Positive numbers, but there was a recession in business investment. This industry remembers what happened in 2015, 2016. Well, as an economist, you can't make it too well on bad calls, can you? Well, well right, right. <laughs> but you can learn from the bad calls. And so right now, everyone's talking about big U.S. recession coming, great recession coming, da 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 And well, wait a minute. We've seen this before. We've seen a business investment recession in the U.S. where the economy kept going. And that happened in 2015, 2016. And by the way, the unemployment rate then was 5%-ish, not 3.7. So we have an even better job market now than we had a couple of years ago. All right. Yes or no question. Sure. Simple yes or no. Sure. 2020 recession? Not for the overall economy. Outstanding. Jason? Awesome. Thank you for spending the time with your brother. It's always good to be with you. And I hope everybody that's listening to this, and as, oh, I get to sign off by saying, this was the episode of Pile of Scrap. (laughs) This has been a Sierra International Machinery original audio series. Thanks for listening. Please share this podcast and make sure to subscribe.